All right, so I hope you all have enjoyed that bumper for 31 weeks right there. If not, feel free to go back online and watch it anytime you would prefer. So let's start with a joke. So a doctor, an engineer, and a politician walk into a bar. Or if you'd like, they can walk into a coffee shop if you think that makes the story better. It really doesn't matter. So they're arguing about whose profession is the oldest, and they agreed to pay $100 to whoever makes the best argument. And the doctor is the first who speaks up, and he says that medicine is the oldest profession because without medicine, humanity would have never survived. The other ones thought about it, and they weren't completely convinced. So then the engineer spoke up, and the engineer said, engineering is the oldest profession because before anything was, everything was in chaos. It took an engineer to bring order out of chaos. They thought it made sense, but they weren't convinced. And the politician just simply smiled and said, who do you think created the chaos? They gave him his money. So it doesn't matter if you're talking about professions or money, houses, degrees, sports, you name it. If there's something to compare, there's going to be something to brag about. As long as there is pride, bragging is going to be a part of the bigger picture. So one of those guys who was a legend both as a boxer and a braggart was a guy by the name of Muhammad Ali. Now that guy was punishing in the ring and he might have been even more merciless with a microphone in his hand. One of his famous quotes was, it's not bragging if you can back it up. <laughs> Makes sense. Another guy who was equally dominant in his sport was Bruce Lee. He had a very interesting take on self-promotion. He said, and I quote, if I tell you I'm good, you'll think I'm bragging. If I tell you I'm bad, you'll know I'm lying. I like that. That made me laugh when I read that. That's good times. So God addresses this topic of boasting or bragging or prideful remarks throughout Scripture. But one of the things you'll notice is it is always mentioned in a corrective sense. It's always focusing on what needs to change in those prideful remarks. So there's nothing wrong with taking pride in your work, working hard, setting goals, working towards achieving those goals. We need to do everything as unto the Lord. Nothing wrong with that. The problem is whenever a person's ego pushes God out of the equation of success. The problem is when we begin to believe our own press release, or as the old saying goes, when we think the sun rises to hear us crow. So tonight, we're going to finish the book of Galatians, and Paul confronts people for boasting in their flesh, but he challenges them to boast in the cross of Christ. He uses this final section of verses not only to recap the message he's been sharing all the way through the letter to the Galatians, but also to reinforce the entire message of Galatians. I can give you the entire message of Galatians in less than 10 seconds. Here's simply the message of Galatians. You're no longer under the law, you're under grace. Liberty is your reality because the cross of Christ has set you free. That's the message of the book of Galatians. So if you want to boast, Paul says, boast in the cross. Anything less is going to be deceitful. It's not going to accurately portray reality. 
We didn't work our way into our freedom. We didn't discipline ourselves into freedom. We didn't keep the law so well that we were forgiven of our sins. We are who we are. We are where we are. We have what we have because of the grace of God. He says, if you boast, boast in the cross. So I'm going to invite you to go with me in your Bibles tonight. Galatians chapter number 6. One last time, Galatians chapter number 6 will be in verses 11 through 18. I am speaking this evening on the subject of boasting in the cross. Now, I'm not going to read the text in advance. I'm going to take this moment and try to answer this morning's message for just a second. So this is a message in a message. For those of you who are not here at House of Prayer, you got no idea what I'm doing, but here's what's happened. I had two people as soon as I got here tonight that asked the same question. How do I know that I'm praying in faith? That's a good question to ask based upon what we covered this morning. So if people are asking the question, I want to do everything I can to answer that question. So this is not in your notes. You're going to have to hold everything I just said with my introduction in your mind. We're going to come back to that in a second. But let me answer that question as best I can for people who are wondering about from this morning. If you don't want to know what I'm talking about, watch the message from this morning. You'll know exactly where this fits in. How do you know if you're praying in faith? I'm going to give you several things. First, are you continuing to pray until God answers? There is something about the continuation of, I'm going to keep coming at God. I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep persevering. How do you know you're praying in faith? Because you keep coming. When you no longer come, you can see that doubt is now beginning to creep in. Here's another one. Are you expecting God to answer? Sometimes we pray to check it off the list so that we can settle our mind and say, at least I did that. If God answered your request right now, would you be surprised? Are you actually expecting God to answer? There needs to be an expectancy as we pray in faith. Here's another one. What are you putting behind the but in your prayers? What you really believe is what's on the second side of the sentence. For example, I believe God can do anything, but I don't know if he's going to do that for me. I believe God can provide, but I don't know if he's going to provide now. What are you putting on the other side of the but? That is what you truly believe. Here's another one you can put in there. Are you praising God and are you okay However, he responds. When you are walking in faith and praying in faith, if God changes the plan from what you think, you're completely okay with that because you're trusting him. You're trusting his ways, trusting his timing, trusting his means, trusting his methods. Are you okay with however God chooses to respond? Here's another one. Are you telling others and having them join you in your prayers? Why would I say that that is a piece of faith? Because when you're not praying in faith, you keep it to yourself because you don't want to look embarrassed if God doesn't answer the way you asked him. How do you know you're praying in faith? You're going to be telling people. Say, join me in praying in this. Come alongside of me. I'm praying for this. And here's the last part that I would give, and that is, what would you do if God never answered your prayers the way you're asking on this side of eternity while you're still living? Would it change 
how you approach God. If it would, doubt has crept in. But if you could say, listen, if God says he's going to answer that somewhere after I'm already in heaven, I'm okay with that. If you're okay with how God chooses to respond, it is an indicator, once again, of praying in faith. So that is your message inside of a message. If you did not get all those points down, please feel free to go back and watch online, share it with your friends and those who are not here. All right, so that being said, let's now have a word of prayer. We're gonna jump into our text, the last one over in Galatians chapter number six. I hope you are there in verse number 11. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that you would allow this message to be able to encapsulate exactly what the text is saying and at the same time, Lord, would you allow it to be something that helps us to see exactly how grace is how we begin and grace is how we end. God, would you always help us to see exactly how you want us to apply these truths into our lives individually. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So the Apostle Paul ends his letter to the Galatians with the same intensity that he began this letter to the Galatians. He didn't take time in chapter 1 for extended greetings or words of encouragement. And he does not take time in chapter 6 for personal goodbyes or pats on the back. It is 100% business mode all the way through. From the beginning statements all the way through the ending credits, he is commending his readers to the grace of God. We see it in chapter 1, verse 3, and in chapter 6, verse 18. He goes back to grace again and again. They did not need flowery words. They did not need hollow praise. They needed grace and truth, and that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is delivering. Now, over the last two chapters, Paul has helped them see that there is going to be a decision they're going to have to make in several key areas. They had to choose between bondage and liberty. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. They also had to choose between the flesh or the spirit. Chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. They also had to choose between, am I going to live for self or am I going to live for others? That's found in chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Now he gives them one final place that they're going to have to decide. Are they going to live for the praise of men or are they going to live for the glory of God? That's found in verses 11 through 18. It's good to know what we're supposed to do. It's also good to know why we're supposed to do it. And that's the motive that's coming in in this place. So look at what it says in verse number 11. The apostle Paul is writing and he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, this is not uncommon uh, for the Apostle Paul to dictate to somebody else his letters. They're writing it down. And then he would come in at the very end and he would give a salutation or he would give an ending in order to prove the authenticity of him being the author of that letter. You see that in 1 Corinthians 16, 21, Colossians 4, 18, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17. But why did he use the phrase, with these large letters? What, what is that about? 
Well, as best we can tell, and again, I, I'm not going to die on this hill. There, there's nothing that we can look at and say, this is exactly the reason. But as best we can tell, based upon scholarship, based upon what's happening in the flow, it was to emphasize the importance of what he was saying. It would be the same as somebody writing the word urgent in all caps, boldface, underlined, right in front of you. It's like, I want to get your attention about this. So what exactly is he trying to get their attention about? He wants to leave no doubt that the same grace that you needed to start the race is the same grace you need to end the race. He wants to make sure everybody understands it is the cross of Jesus Christ that has set you free and it is the cross of Jesus Christ that allows you to walk in that freedom. He wants people to know that without a doubt. So that leads to our big truth for the night. That is the cross of Christ is the chorus of the redeemed. The chorus of the redeemed. It is the mantra of the redeemed. It is the song of the redeemed. It is the repeated phrase of the redeemed. In other words, regardless of the question or the trial or the hope or the problem, the joy or the need, if you were to ask, what is the answer? What is the solution? Where do we find victory? It should be that the believer goes back and says, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the ongoing chorus. It's the repeated phrase of the redeemed. Now, these final verses clearly tell us the cross is not a fringe issue. It is central to the gospel. It is central to our freedom in Christ. It is central to our walking in the truths that we have as a follower of Christ. It is the symbol of suffering, but it's also an emblem of victory. It marks hell's greatest defeat, and it also marks our greatest gain. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. So now let's read again what we find in verses 12 and 13. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that, listen to this phrase, so that they may boast in your flesh. All right, now we, we need a moment on this one. There's a lot happening in these verses. So, this is the third time. In fact, if you don't do this, I would encourage you to do it along the way. Uh, it's good to highlight, to mark repeated words, repeated times that same thing comes up. This is the third time he has brought up this idea of boasting within the letter to the Galatians. So in chapter 5, verse 26, Paul said, Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. And then he goes on from there, carries the idea into chapter 6, verse 4. He said, but each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Now, Paul is not encouraging people to brag about their own spiritual lives. That's not what he is encouraging people to do at all. But rather, he wants them to brag about what God has done. In other words... If you find that you are walking by the Spirit, that you are being led by the Spirit, that you are manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, 
tell people what God has done in your life. Now, this is not compare yourself to another believer. That, that is not what this is. You are not in competition with another believer. In fact, the only competition we have is with the divine potential that God has placed within us. In other words, God has given you gifts. He has given you opportunity. He has given you life in your lungs. He has given you a chance to experience his unbelievable grace. The question becomes, if he's poured all of that in, what are we pouring back out? Another way of saying it would be, if he has created you to soar like an eagle, are you acting like a buzzard? Okay, if you're not living up to the potential that God's placed in you, yes, that's a problem. But our job is not to compare ourselves with another believer and say, at least I'm doing better than them. That's, that's pride, which pretty much puts us back at start, starting place number one. Okay, so in this, he's not encouraging arrogance. He is encouraging people to share what God has done for them. Look at what it says in verse number 13. It says this weird phrase. It talks about others boasting in your flesh. That takes a moment. So those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. Now, if you'll remember from our conversation, we've dealt with multiple conversations about circumcision in this particular series. But if you will remember, circumcision was a badge of the law. It was a marking of the body in order to indicate somebody was submitting themselves under the Mosaic law. So what they were wanting to do was encourage other people to be circumcised to indicate that they too are submitted to the law of Moses. So whenever it speaks of the fact that they are showing the flesh, trying to compel you to be circumcised, if you'll remember, the flesh is the remnants of our former life whenever we were under the sin nature. It's the habits, the traits, and the tendencies that we developed with that sin nature. The flesh is all about self-effort apart from the Spirit of God. It's, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to try it myself. I'm not going to depend upon God for anything. It says, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised try to get you to undergo a procedure of the body to signify your submission to the law of Moses. But notice their motivation in verse 12. So that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. The motivation of Judaizers had nothing to do with the well-being of the Galatian believers. Their motivation was they're trying to keep themselves safe. They're trying to avoid persecution. They saw what had happened in the Apostle Paul's life. The Apostle Paul preached the grace of God and salvation apart from the works of the law, and he was persecuted for it. So what they're saying here is they want you to submit. They want you to follow the law so that they don't get persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, have you ever stopped to ask yourself, why is the cross of Christ so offensive to people? Why is it that you can step into any public university in the country and you can talk about any religion out there other than Christianity and people will say, it is enlightened, it is beautiful, it's wonderful. 
And yet the moment you bring up Christianity, it's, it is judgmental, it is hateful, and it is foolish. Why is there such a disdain for the message of the cross? I'll give you a few of the reasons for that. A lot of the answer here is found in the origins of crucifixion and how the cross was a symbol that changed with the message of Jesus Christ. So think of it like this. Crucifixion did not originate with the Romans. Now, the Romans were those who refined the process. They perfected the process, but it did not originate with the Romans. Crucifixion could have been one of the cruelest means of execution that was ever devised. It was not only designed to kill, it was designed to degrade and to humiliate the person as they died. It was a form of execution that was generally reserved by the government to be a deterrent against sedition and rebellion and other serious crimes. So when Jesus is crucified, the cross, the meaning, the significance now takes on a whole different type of meaning. The cross, listen to each of these phrases, became a symbol of religion's inability to earn God's favor. If it was enough to just be good and moral, Jesus did not have to die on the cross. So when the cross is there, it is a stark, ongoing reminder. Our best is not good enough before a holy God. People don't like to know that their best is not good enough. They want to believe that all roads lead to the top of the mountain. They want to believe that every path is going to be equally good. They, they feel like that is an enlightened response. And the cross of Jesus Christ stands right in front of that and says, no, it's not. There has to be another way. The cross reveals the depth of our wickedness. Think of the fact that literally people were shouting, crucify him, the embodiment of love, and release a criminal to us instead. How twisted has the, the mind and the heart become when we are willing to say, do away with love and give us the criminal? The cross reveals that. The cross reminds us that sin has twisted our minds to the point that we reject grace in order to hold on to our own individual pride. The cross, it's going to strip us of our self-righteousness. It's going to disarm us of our good deeds. It's going to break our prideful arguments. It leaves us alone before a holy God with the effects of our sin and not a single thing to offer in our hands. We don't like feeling naked and vulnerable. The cross is what says you've got nothing you're bringing apart from depravity. That's all that we have. We didn't figure God out. We didn't get things well to the point he decided, yes, that's enough. You've earned my favor. The cross says there's nothing you could do that would be enough. It's the nature of the cross that led the hymn writers to say in the incredible hymn, Rock of Ages, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply 
to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's someone who understands the cross. What a beautiful hymn with incredible theology. As much as the cross wounds our sinful pride, it is also the cross that revealed God's unbelievable love for us. It's the cross that shows the depths of his grace. It's the cross that shows the magnitude of his mercy. Because of Jesus, the cross went from being a horrible symbol of death and shame to one of the most cherished symbols of life and peace. It's because of what he's done for us. That's why for the believer, from now through eternity, the cross of Christ is the course of the redeemed. When somebody says, what happened in your life? All we can say is, this is what Jesus did for me on the cross. How did your life change? How did the addiction get set free? Who restored your marriage? Who brought you back from the brink? Who left you in your right mind? Who was with you in your darkest hour? All you can say is, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. Why did he do it? I don't know other than the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the beauty and the mystery of the cross. The Judaizers wanted to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Oh, get this. This this is worth the amount that you paid to walk in the doors tonight. You ready for this? Get you some of this. Listen, they identified with the church. They did not identify with the cross. That'll preach, and I'm about to give it a shot. They identified with the church. They didn't identify with the cross. They recognized Jesus as Messiah. They were unwilling to recognize him as master. They wanted a leader to deliver them from their oppressors. They did not want a deliverer to free them from their sins. Listen, the same thing is still happening today. People play church. They want the church without the cross. They, they, they want to be a part of, you know, a, a group of people who have good morality. They, they, they want good thoughts to ponder in difficult moments. They, they want an opportunity to soothe a sin-stained conscience. They just don't want the cross of Jesus Christ that sets them free. It's the cross that brings us back to our need for God. That... They want the church. They don't want the cross. They are religious, but they're lost. That's why in verse 15, he says, For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In other words, at the end of the day, it's not what you do to your body or don't do to your body. The question is, are you a new creation in Christ? Has Jesus set you free? If you can say yes, don't worry about the rest. Hey, that rhymes. That just came out like that. Sometimes I get excited with my own self up here like, amen, Paul. That's a good word. All right? Verse 13. 
For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. They're hypocrites. They say do this, but they don't do that. (laughs) Here's funny. They will tell other people to submit to the law, but they're the ones who are unwilling to submit to the law. And verse 13 tells us what's going on here. It says, they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, doing what they say makes them look good. They're working to win converts to the law so that they can brag about how many people were following them. So they're saying, we want you to be circumcised so we can boast about what just happened in your life. Verse 14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Have you been crucified to the world? The the word world, it it speaks of this idea of the world systems, the the religious systems, the, the systems that drive how it is that people operate this self-righteous, do-it-yourself systems. He's saying, I've been crucified to that. Verses 14 through 16, he gives three reasons why we glory only in the cross. That is, first, the cross has the power to free people from self, the flesh, and the world. Pause there for a moment. Are you trying to change somebody yourself? How well has that gone for you? You know what you need? The gospel of Jesus Christ to set that person free. It's the cross that changes self. It's the cross that changes the flesh. So a couple of these are from previous messages. I'm just going to give you the reference for you to write down. The cross frees us from self, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, and it frees us from the flesh, Galatians 5, verse 24. I'm going to move on quickly from here. It says the second piece of that, the cross has the power to do what the flesh cannot do. Write this reference off to the side if it's not already there. Romans 8, 3. Paul said, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. The law could point out your sin. The law could not enable you to overcome your sin. That's what God did through Jesus on the cross. Here's the next one. The cross has the power to save with new life. Jesus told Nicodemus, which by the way, he was a religious man and a moral man. He told Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Someone can walk into, this is going to sound like a strange analogy, Somebody can walk into an old, dilapidated, broken-down house, look around, and say, it's got good bones. I can fix it. I can take this down. We can put this here. I can make something beautiful out of this. You cannot look at a person's life that has been stained by sin and say, it's still got good bones. That evil goes to the core. God is not about polishing up the old man. He's making a new man. 
It's a completely new start. It's not, I'm going to come in and try to iron out the wrinkles and we're going to try to make it look good. I'm going to throw some paint on this thing and hope it works through. It's completely new. You are a new creation in Christ. It is the cross that has the power to save with new life. Verse 16, it says, when a person walks by this rule, when they understand that, peace and mercy will be upon them and upon the Israel of God. You ever notice that phrase, not the God of Israel, the Israel of God? Again, we're going to need a moment to explain this. The word rule is canon. It's measurement. It was a standard or a principle. So to walk by this rule or to walk by this standard is to accept that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the standard. I receive that by faith. I am walking in the power of the Holy Spirit rather than by sight and by self-effort. We have peace with God, or as you look into this text, we see there's peace and there is mercy that is upon them. Now, when it uses this phrase, the Israel of God, it refers to the Jewish believers in Christ who are spiritual as well as physical descendants of Abraham. They are heirs of the promise rather than that of law. They are the true Israel of faith. Those referred to in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, as well as in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Now look at verse number 17. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. couple of interesting points here. The Judaizers spoke of their allegiance to the law symbolized by circumcision, a cutting of the flesh. Paul could show them his arms. He could show them his back. He could show him his legs and basically say, if you want to know where my allegiance lies, the scars of Christ are right here. This is where I'm at. Now, that same word marks, it's a Greek word, stigmata. It actually means scar marks. There was two other ways it would have been taken in that culture. When a runaway slave was brought back to his master, he'd be branded on the forehead. Also, as soldiers who were part of a famous companies, they would tattoo the names of their commanders as a source of pride on their foreheads. Listen to this. It doesn't matter if Paul is referring to himself as a runaway slave who was found by his master. Or if he's a soldier in Christ's army and he's saying, I'm proud of my commander. Or if he is a follower of a great God saying, this is where my allegiance lies. He basically is able to point at the scars on his body and say, if you want to know what I believe, if you want to know where my allegiance is at, if you want to see what I'm going to boast in, it's going to be in the brand marks of Jesus Christ on my body. There's times I sit here and I think of that, and I'm like, oh, I wish I could have sat there and watched the expression on their face when he was writing this. It's one thing for somebody to give a good word. 
It's another thing to see the body of the person who has been broken living out those truths before you. Let me close with what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. He said, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why only one message? Because that is the message. When you mess up the gospel, there is no other message. If you preach the gospel, you don't need to have another one. It's the gospel. It's Jesus Christ in him crucified. The cross is the only message that can free the captives. It is the only message that reminds us of the depths of God's love. It's the only one that drips God's forgiveness. It washes people in grace and covers us in mercy. The cross is the only message that consistently levels our pride and decimates our sense of justice. It's the only message that constantly will fill our hearts with gratitude and can make a formerly dead heart worship a risen Savior. The cross of Jesus Christ is the chorus of the redeemed. It's what we go back to again and again and again. It is where we glory. It is how we brag. It is our lens of clarity. It is our Ebenezer of remembrance. It is only the cross of Jesus Christ. So now he's got one last verse, and it's the last one for you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. If his grace is with you, that's all you need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, Lord, for your word. We are grateful, God, for the fact that the truths of your word do not change based on time, based on circumstances, or anything else. God, it is foundation. It is life. It is bread for the hungry. It is water for the thirsty. Lord, thank you for the fact that your word so clearly lets us know that we have been freed. We have been forgiven. We have come out from under the law, and we are able to walk in grace and God, may we continue to thrive in the grace that you have given to us. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.